Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. We took a little hiatus over the summer, but we're excited to come back to you today. Um, we're actually coming back a little earlier than uh, we even planned to this season, just because there's some really exciting, like historic news um, that came out in the last few days, which is that Israel signed a peace treaty with the United Arab Emirates, um, which is the first uh peace treaty that Israel has signed in the last 20 years with an Arab country. Um, it's the first one where Israel didn't have to give up land to um, make a peace treaty. It's, it's pretty exciting. Um, and from just looking around on social media where I spend a little bit of my time, it seems like um, other countries are you know, now talking to Israel too. Um, now, the cool thing about this from our perspective, I mean, we're obviously fans of Israel here. Um, you know, We're always taking a look at sort of the orthodox Jewish angle to anything. Um, and I actually, I mean, from years back already, um, have a connection to someone that already had United Arab Emirates connection. Um, back when my husband and I were first married, uh, we're actually celebrating our 20th anniversary today. Mazel tov to us. Um, we knew a bunch of family, a bunch of couples, young married couples in Riverdale, uh, New York. Um, and one of these couples uh, were uh, Yehuda and Michelle Sarna. Um, and I think maybe back in those days, uh, Yehuda Sarna was uh, maybe uh, getting smicha or maybe uh, just in a, uh, an assistant position um, in there in Riverdale. Uh, but since then, I've kind of been watching his career from afar. So where he is today, he's the executive director of the Bronfman Center for Jewish Life at NYU, was university chaplain for NYU, and an adjunct assistant professor of public administration at the Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. Uh, he attended Yeshiva Hartzion, um, and he earned his BA in Literature and Judaic Studies from Yeshiva College. Um, he's a graduate of YU as well. He came to NYU in 2002, um, and he founded the Jewish Learning Fellowship. Um, and he's won a bunch of awards, but kind of the, the thing that I really noticed last year was that he was appointed as the chief rabbi of the United Arab Emirates. So once I saw this news, I said, I'm going to reconnect with uh, Rabbi Sarna to find out how things have been and, and what that whole experience is like. So Rabbi Sarna, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to be here. And I've been following your career as well. It's quite quite amazing. All right. Great thing started off in Riverdale, right? So, um, <laughs> so yeah. So um, I guess, you know, um, what I'm most curious about is how, like, how did this process begin? Um, you know, there's, I guess, different, I mean, the, the chief rabbi of, Athens, I believe we just had Shabbos lunch with him a few months ago in Greece. He's a young guy, maybe even a little bit younger than you. But um, generally, I think of like chief rabbis as being like a rabbi Lau or sort of someone, um, I don't know, maybe with more years behind them. I won't say more wisdom. I'm sure you have plenty of wisdom too. But how did, because um, we're still young, because I'm around your age, how did this begin? How did you go from your position at NYU to talking to um, the United Arab Emirates? When well, look. This is a this is a, um, a chief rabbinate, I think, like no other. Let, mm -hmm. let me just tell you the story, like a, a sketch version. So, New York University is um, is actually a global network university. What that means is that uh, it, it pursued a plan of having campuses all over the world. So, mm -hmm. there are six in, in in Europe: London, Paris, Prague, Madrid, Berlin. Florence, uh, there's one in Buenos Aires, one in Sydney, Australia. Um, and, and at a certain point, the leadership of this university looked out and said, well, we, we don't have a presence in the Middle East. And in uh, 2008, 2009, 
the decision was made to go ahead and and build a campus in Tel Aviv. And if, in fact, the NYU Tel Aviv just celebrated its 10th anniversary last year, and also in uh, in the United Arab Emirates and the 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 campus in uh, in Abu Dhabi, uh, which is not just a semester abroad, but actually a four year campus uh, for your college experience was that was my entree and i was invited in 2009 to come along with other nyu administrators from new york to the uae to interview high school students who were being flown in from around the world uh, to seek admission to nyu abu dhabi and i gotta tell you this blew my mind you know I, Initially, I was asked, and I said, "My only condition is, is uh, um, you know, you're asking me because I'm the rabbi of the university. I just want to let you know I'm going to wear my kippa wherever I go. I'm going to wear my tzitzit like I usually do. I'm not going to conceal my identity. When I'm talking to students, I'm not going to hide who I am, even though, of course, there are students who are coming from uh, uh, around the uh, the Arab world as well as Africa and." and Asia and uh, Russia, et cetera, really from all over. And it, it was completely mind-blowing experience. Um, so Can I just I, stop you for a second? Were you, were you scared? Yeah. Because sometimes I get invited to speak in places that um, sometimes- uh, Of course I was safe. scared. Of course I was scared. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I said yes, and then and, and then the day before I looked on a map, I'm like, where is the United Arab Emirates anyway? And then I look, I'm like, oh my God, it's right next to Saudi Arabia and across the thing from, from Iran and not far from Yemen. And I actually asked and I couldn't eat for the rest of the day. I'm like, what did I get myself into? One of the things that I had to confront while I was there on my first trip was just how deep my stereotype of uh, of the Arab world was. I, mm. I was with my uh, a, a friend and colleague from NYU. He's the imam. He's the Muslim religious leader uh, at NYU New York. We went together, and I, I wanted to go to the to the to supermarket to pick up some food, uh, and and so he came with me. And at a certain point, he wanted to get something from another aisle, and I was in the middle of uh, of looking for Philadelphia cream cheese in the aisle, and the and then he left me, and I was like. Oh my God! I'm going to die. Someone, someone's going to come and stab me uh, in the dairy section, and and just but that the experience of fear was real. Mm. But then I realized just how irrational it was. And in fact, I'm I'm here to tell the story of how I survived the dairy section, um, and 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 did not get stabbed as as looking for cream cheese with an OU on it. But so, can I just say something yeah. like, yes, I hear there, look, this is the challenge and we confront stereotypes or negative things about Orthodox Jews too. I mean, we were out uh, to eat last night in downtown Manhattan um, and my husband, you know, mentioned over dinner that um, he feels nervous now to walk around New York City when he used to not. He said, wearing a yarmulke, um, the idea of a brick being thrown or a bottle being thrown or getting stabbed in the back, he's seen footage of that. So while the chances of all the Jews walking around, you know, there's been maybe a hundred cases um, in the New York area over the last year of someone getting um, stabbed, probably it wouldn't be him, but there is a certain um, 
there is a certain, it's, I don't know if it's crazy or, or outlandish when you have seen other Jews targeted for looking Jewish um, and you're in a place where it's happening that there is some fear that's not totally irrational. Yeah, no? no, it's not irrational. Well, let me tell you, uh, 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 let me just say a comment about that. As I started going, you know, year after year for these candidate weekends, when the high school students would come and I'd go out for those weekends and, and from, you know, 2010, 2011, I couldn't, I was looking and I was talking to people. There was no organized Jewish community. There was maybe a few families knew each other, got together for holidays, but, but then, but then if you think about those years and we're talking about, you know, the attacks in throughout France in mm -hmm. Toulouse and then Hyper Cacher and you think about London and you think about rising anti-Semitism in colleges first in Europe and then in the United States and then Pittsburgh and then whatever. The, the, the Jewish community there started growing mm -hmm. and people mm -hmm. were coming uh, from all over the world, mm -hmm. but particularly from Western countries mm -hmm. and because they felt more safe and that, that's something that I, I've been trying to explain to people, which of course sounds very ironic if you've never visited, but, but it's a very safe country. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for initially was Jews from, from Belgium, UK, France, who, who, who said, you know what, and said to themselves, um, uh, there's something nice about when you want to go to shul, you don't have to present your passport, walk, you know, walk past John Darm holding a... a Wait, so you're a telling me they're safer in, in the United Arab Emirates than they are in their European country? That, that, that is the experience that many people who come from Europe have. And these are, now, these are Orthodox Jews that are leaving Europe, that are fleeing Europe for the safety of the United Arab Emirates. This is well, really... Fleeing, yeah, I mean, fleeing is a strong word. Okay. Um, and, and, and Orthodox, I would say some Orthodox, some are not Orthodox. Okay. But... But or from South Africa, hmm. you know, or from countries in South America, yeah, there's something which is very interesting. The wager that people, the bargain that people are making, is that it does feel safer. Is say I prefer to live in a country where I don't have a vote, but at the same time, oh, they don't get I, a vote. Yeah, no, they don't get no. They're, they're they have a, a you know resident status, but they cannot okay. become a citizen. So. Um, so they prefer to, in a way, trade in the capacity to vote for safety, number one, and and prosperity. Hmm. But it, what it did, as I began to understand kind of the movement of Jews to this to this area, it, it began to upend some of the conventional wisdom that is really held for uh, for the map of global Jewry hmm. uh, since the Holocaust, right? Since World War II, where our assumption was that we will either be safer in our own country, where we have sovereignty, like Israel, or in countries which have enshrined and protect civil rights. Mm -hmm. But what happens when it's those very same rights and freedoms which enable particular societies and countries to become breeding grounds for, for radicalism mm -hmm. and hate? Mm -hmm. Hate speech, very often, is protected speech. Mm -hmm. In the UAE, hate speech is actually a, against a religion. It's actually considered a criminal offense. Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, so, like many many Jews who live in the UAE, you ask them, "Have you experienced anti-Semitism?" They say, "Not from the Emiratis, maybe from some of the other Europeans who are there." But, mm. 
but not from the not from the Emiratis. Hmm. Okay. So, and what was there a political change? Was there a shift? Um, it, was this just that you found out that things were safer for Jews than you realized, or was there some sort of leadership change that made things safer for Jews because a new leadership has um, brought in a different mindset? So I would not say that there was a 180 that occurred in the, in the country, but there certainly were some very important um, milestones along the way. And, um, and 9-11 being one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there's a, a story that um, the Crown Prince, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, told me about his conversation with his father, who was the founder of the country, still living during 9-11 in the aftermath. And he said he was sitting with his father after his, um, after his father committed troops to the U.S.-led coalition in Afghanistan. And, and he, he said his father engaged him in this conversation, in this decision. And he said, Mohammed, it's important for me that, that you understand why it is that I decided to do this, because you know, this is controversial here. I'm sending Muslim troops to fight again and kill other mm, Muslims. Muslims. So he said, Mohammed, why do you think I'm doing this? And, and the crown prince at that point responded and said, well, is it because you want to, you know, satisfy the wishes of President Bush? And he said, hey, that's 5% of it. He said, is it because you're concerned that they might come to the UAE and try to do a similar kind of attack? He said, maybe that's another 5%. But the real reason why we're doing this, Mohammed, is because these people have totally corrupted Islam. Hmm. They've taken the laws of how you slaughtered animals in the Quran and apply that to killing other human beings. Hmm. And so we need to do it. So I would say the, 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 um, the impact of 9-11 mm-hmm played a very important mm-hmm. role in separating the, uh, moderates from extremists. Yeah, I would, I would say that. And, and, and so at that point you really have a doubling down on the, uh, on a, a third path, a third way in the construction of, uh, of Arab national identity. You know, there had been those, some Arab states were built on a kind of a secular but anti-colonialist, anti-Western, you know, mentality. You're thinking about Saddam Hussein. You think about Assad. You know, uh, those types, um, and, and those ended up being, you know, not particularly successful projects. You know, weak economies, we, etc. And then uh, the second path that was charted by many Muslim-majority countries was the theocracy along radical lines. Uh, you know, you think about Iran or, or some of the others, and, and those were also not particularly successful. What they've done so effectively, and, and this is a multi-decade process. This is not uh, 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 this is not uh, overnight. You know, new person come in. And, no, this is a multi-decade process. What they've really done is that they have highlighted the part of Arab heritage which is all about hospitality. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what does it mean to, um, to, uh, to, to welcome in the stranger in the middle of the desert? Well, because they're the children of Abraham Avinu, yeah, aren't they, right? Exactly right. So, so it's exactly right. So they've taken that and have 
applied it to the 21st century mm-hmm. with some of the largest mm-hmm. airports in the world and some of the most amazing hotels in the world. And this is the, the idea of welcoming the stranger, this kind of radical hospitality is so deeply baked into the DNA mm-hmm. of, of Emirati culture. And, uh, and, and they've charted a course, um, which, and there's no mistaking it. They've charted a course which positions them as uh, at a crossroads between East and West, between mm. uh, between uh, an Arab history and a global, uh, uh, an inter- integrated global future, and those themes are are, are 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 everywhere in the country, and them moving forward with with bringing in NYU to Abu Dhabi, you know, Western liberal style mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. within an Arab country, um, it was was really part of that movement. Hmm. Can we talk like some tachlis now? How many shuls? Where can I get kosher food? Is there going to be a Pesach program? How many Jews are there? Like, what are sort of the stats of um, living an observant life there? Shuls, number of people, kosher yeah, food. Yeah, so the, is the the basic fact sheet is uh, so in in um, twenty fifteen uh, there started being uh, um, uh, a weekly minion in people's homes for Shabbos. Hmm. Twenty seventeen, they decided to lease out a villa which became the first you know dedicated shul mm-hmm. um which became the hub and had been to a certain extent but became the hub really for jewish life um this past year there's uh, another chabad shul a chabad led shul that uh that opened up um there's uh, uh, a kosher caterer who's she calls her style kosherati you know a blend between kosher and right. emirates she has kosher constituents she has emirati constituents um, and, um, and, uh, probably, you know, uh, a few hundred active Jews, but, you know, people will come uh, at least several times a year. And, um, but I think it's going to grow. Also, I think, um, you know, the, the, what, what I've been seeing is that whereas it used to be people would come for two, three years for work and then go, people are, now are coming, they're meeting partners, they're having children, they're laying down roots. They're going to need a mikvah and a school to make this we're more in the permanent. Process, yeah, we're in the process of, of building a mikvah as part of this major initiative that the government mm. announced last year to build a complex, a multi-faith complex in Abu Dhabi with a mosque, church, and synagogue. Separate buildings, but connected through gardens and an educational center. And as part of the shul complex, there will be, you know, obviously a sanctuary, Facing Jerusalem, uh, hmm. but also a mikvah and also a Beit Midrash. Hmm. Wow. So, what are your roles as chief rabbi uh, thus far since you were appointed last year? So, uh, obviously, the first part of being uh, of being a chief rabbi is being a rabbi. I mean, even right. though I'm, I've so I've been visiting now more often, roughly every other month pre-corona every other month and and that is you know obviously like procuring all the religious items that are needed and and pastoring to people who are in need of uh, need of care in one way or another um helping sometimes with issues of personal status and um so that's kind of like on the the typical front the the atypical front which is why i said at the beginning this is a chief rabbinate like no other and trying to write the script as we go. And I'm probably making a lot of mistakes, to be honest. You know, I, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, I'm the expert. But um, 
but uh, the, the interesting part has been uh, contributing to various government efforts to promote the idea of mo moderation, tolerance, openness, both within the UAE and beyond. So um, I, I've done a few videos with the Ministry of Culture, uh, you know, where they'll pull together a number of different um, a, a number of different uh, uh, religious leaders and we'll talk about our faith. I, I, I led one of the sessions at the National Day of Prayer, which occurred during the pandemic. Um, I, um, and then, but then also abroad. I mean, anytime I travel to one place or another, uh, I've been able to meet up with the UAE ambassador in, uh, in those countries and sometimes do events with them. Um, and really speaking about my experience as a rabbi in the UAE, uh, I had this, the most, it was actually my first experience with that kind of governmental platform was, um, was actually right here in New York at the United Nations headquarters, the ambassador to the UN. Her name is Lana Nuseva. Um, invited me after we met briefly at something. She invited me to come and speak at, um, at an event the UAE was hosting, which was for 50 plus ambassadors from Muslim countries. And she said, we decided that we want the theme to be on, on tolerance and combating extremism. And we're going to have the permanent representative from the Holy See, from the Vatican there. We're going to have uh, the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres. He's going to talk. And, you know, would you be willing to talk? And I had this five-minute slot. I mean, Alice, it's incredible to think about. I had this five-minute slot. Where, where, when, uh, at what other point would I have imagined mm -hmm. to have, to, to be positioned not as uh, an outsider kind of belligerent voice addressing 50 Muslim states, but, but uh, as an insider, you know, as a guest of the host to talk about what we need to do. Now, I was, it was, it was happened to be May 2nd last year, it coincidentally was Yom HaShoah. Mm. And uh, uh, I, I saw Antonio Guterres before the event, just before the event, I said, you know, today is Holocaust Memorial Day. Do you think it's okay if I talk about the Holocaust? And he said, not only is it okay, you should. And and I, I talked about instances where Muslims saved Jews in the Holocaust and how we all need to stand up for each other. Um, and I, I came out of that room, you know, almost pinching myself. And so I guess the message that I have for the for your viewers, your listeners, is that th this is this deal is not a product of like a, a, a quick transaction, you know, uh, uh, a room where it happened where there's a bunch of like, you know, back Politicians, yeah. yeah, this is a long term hmm. deep uh, uh, mind, you know, mindset, uh, a DNA of tolerance, which has, which has really enabled a, the fact that a Jewish community there, a Jewish community has been prospering there for the past number of years, separate from any, right. you know, separate from any negotiation track or anything like that, says it all. Yeah. Says it all. Have there been any instances, you said you have had conversations with um, Muslim religious leaders. Are there any kind of divrei Torah that you share with each other? Obviously, you know, we share Abraham Avinu, you know, we kind of split with his children. Are there any kind of shared messages that you've um, spoken between the Quran and the Torah or the Talmud that um, kind of some shared values? I mean, obviously the hospitality, but any any uh, particular instances that come to mind? 
Um, I, I think you've named it. I think it really is about um, it's about shared lineage. Um, mm-hmm. The thing that always strikes me is that for many of the people with whom I interact, and look, I'm not painting one broad brush. There's, of course, there's variation, there's difference, but there's this kind of overwhelming feeling that 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 it's unnatural that Jews are not in the Arabian Peninsula as they once were. Mm-hmm. They read the Quran and they read stories about Muhammad's neighbor who was a Jew and the Jewish tribes that fought alongside Muhammad's army and and etc. It, it's the presence of Jews is a part of their history as are the presence of Christians. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that that uh, kind of helped shape the UAE kind of worldview and kind of strategy is the fact that there has been over the past decades a mass Christian exodus and of course also a mass Jewish exodus from uh, from Arab countries because in part they didn't feel safe or their shrines or holy sites were attacked and uh, or or there were strands of nationalism which were exclusive to Islam and not others and they've taken the position that that if anything, you know, more needs to be done to bring Christians and Jews, and in the case of the UAE, Hindus, Baha'is, etc., others, and enable them to feel comfortable. One of the stories that Emiratis will tell you, but probably no one else knows or will mention, is that one of the first things the founder of the country, Sheikh Zayed, did with the oil revenue is build a church in the center of the city for the British who were um, who were living in uh, in in the UAE, hmm. you know? So th- that that's the kind of country we're talking about, and that's the kind of legacy they they have. Now that comes with with the price. Not everybody likes that, and you see from the reaction from some other um, Muslim countries uh, who do not do not like what the UAE is doing, the approach that it's taken. So they've um, They've, they've paid for it and they will continue to pay for it. Hmm. Um, but that, that is the course that they've charted. So this is not a result. This is not out of a whim. This is not right. someone leaning on them saying, you got to do it. You got to do it. They're not getting paid off to do this in any yeah. way. Uh, this is really, this is the product of decades and years uh, and lifetimes really of uh, of charting a course of national identity, which is rooted in radical hospitality, which is which sees itself at the crossroads of so many different influences. Uh, it's it's the tent of Avram. Beautiful. We have about a minute and a half to go. Um, I guess closing thoughts about any future predictions, either um, where you see this going in terms of how many Jews might be moving there in the next five to 10 years or other countries that might follow suit that are maybe kind of on, on the edge now? Do you have any thoughts about sort of what might come next? I think that we'll see uh, a vibrant Jewish community of 10,000 or more Jews living there um, in the coming years. Uh, with shuls, schools, such a, you know, a whole Jewish infrastructure and um, and I think it, I, I think Jews will contribute to that to the to the country uh, as they already have as they have. And I, I also believe that it's going to change 
the way Jews around the world see Arabs. Beautiful. Well, this sounds my experience. My experience in the supermarket. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna uh, confront us with our own stereotypes and fears. It sounds uh, messianic. I mean, really, what you know, uh, the dream I would say of all major religions is for world peace and common brotherhood and a sort of a universal recognizing of God. So, um, thank you so much for giving us. First of all, for being brave enough to uh, take that initial trip, um, because it seems like this, you know, has really laid the work for. Um, you know, this, this new Jewish renaissance there. Um, and we wish you continued Hatzlacha. That's so nice. And wonderful to see you again. Yes, you too. Okay, all the best. And you can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.